Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Professor George Herring, uh, Professor Emeritus at the University of Kentucky and a, a noted and esteemed uh, scholar and uh, authority on uh, many wars, uh, and including the Great War, uh, World War I, and uh, the Vietnam War, among his other many uh, works and, and lectures and uh, uh, appearances around uh, Kentucky. Uh, Professor Herring, it's, uh, it's such an honor to, to once again uh, be in conversation with you. It's good to be with you, Bill. It's a great pleasure to, uh, to be on the other side of the microphone. We did some television together years ago. And, we, we did, sir, and I enjoyed uh, each and every one of those. In your um, appearances with uh, the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau, uh, you really go out in the field uh, with, with a couple of... Um, of talks that you've honed to uh, uh, a great degree and with great expertise. Um, and I don't know if you'd rather begin to talk about an ordinary soldier in an extraordinary war, which is a terrific title, uh, or whether or not uh, we want to begin with the Vietnam War. So I'm going to let you call it. <laughs> well, <laughs> because I know uh, the I know sort of the backstory of an ordinary soldier that you've told so many times and. And I'd like to hear you tell it again. So why don't we begin there? That, that lecture is a particular joy to me because uh, the ordinary soldier that I talk about, and I usually try not to reveal this until the last line of the talk. In Mount Sterling, I slipped up and let the cat out of the bag early. But that ordinary soldier was my father, uh, who was an Iowa farm boy and drafted in April of 1918. Uh, he was in Europe in the trenches by September 1918, uh, served in uh, two major battles, including Meuse-Argonne at the very end, the climactic battle as far as the United States was concerned. And then, interestingly enough, as a German-American, he served in southwestern Germany in the Rhineland area uh, in the occupation army for six months. So it's a story that uh, I told through his letters home and a little pocket diary that he kept, one little entry for each day. The entries are very short, but they're very telling. When in the battle, for example, he'll mention the names of two or three people killed uh, on that day uh, or some other. Uh, or if, and he was a runner. The interesting thing was he was a runner, which was probably the most dangerous job in the Army. If communications would break down, and they would frequently because they were by wire, uh, and wires don't stand up too long under the under artillery or, or the circumstances of war, he would be the one that would deliver messages from one unit to the next. So it means going out in the middle of uh, a battle and going from one position to the other. So. It's a, it's a great story, and I, it was uh, the most enjoyable thing I've ever done in terms of, of learning the story myself and then writing it up. I, I wrote it up first for an article in the magazine Army History 
which came out in the spring of 2017. And uh, then I did the talk from that and just had great fun with it. People loved it, it, it because it's so personal. How did your father come back from the war? Well, as far as I know, and, and there's so many, what this did was say, oh my, if I could just spend you know, a day with him now and ask all the questions that I want to ask. For all intents and purposes, he came back. I mean, he did fine. He came back. He was a soft, uh, junior at Iowa State College then when he was drafted. And he came back from the Army, got back in June, and went back to Iowa State in August, September, finished up there, and immediately then took a job at Virginia Tech teaching in the animal science department. He was an animal specialist for his career, and then spent his entire life at, uh, at Virginia Tech. So as far as I know, he, he did well. I, I remember there was one letter he wrote home to his parents uh, talking about getting home, and he said, if I get home by the 4th of July, uh, you, I may spend the day in the basement because the firecracker, when the fireworks start, they may, you know, mm -hmm. he didn't say, he didn't specify, but they may trigger things that because from the moment he set foot in France till the end, the artillery boomed 24-7. I mean, it was going all the time. When it finally stopped on November 11th, he, he commented in a letter that, that it was the silence was, was just unbelievable because they, it had been months since they'd heard it. But so for all I know, and you know, I think one of the reasons probably that he did all right was that in Vietnam, for example, the, the soldiers were on average much younger. Uh, World War II, the average age was around 25. I'm not sure what it was. I think it was 24 was probably about the average age in World War I, too, which is what he was when he was drafted. Vietnam, the average age was 19, mm -hmm. so they're younger kids. Uh, and in Vietnam also, they came home suddenly and by themselves. Uh, we talked to uh, Terry Birdwhistle at the library and I talked Terry to... Terry Birdwhistle uh, uh, at the University of Kentucky right, Library, yeah. archivist and, and oral historian. That's right, yeah. We talked to veterans in the state and we talked to a guy in Mount Sterling, in uh, Olifville, excuse me, who had been in combat in the central highlands of Vietnam one day and within several days was home in Olive Hill. I mean, as fast as he could get there. Mm -hmm. He went from the battle uh, to get his gear and get on the airplane and came home. Mm -hmm. And they came home, they came home together, but they didn't know each other. Yeah. But did, did your, did, you have an opportunity to talk with your father about his experiences, or did uh, he would tell stories when I was little. We and particularly during World War II, when when that sort of thing was very much on people's mind. He was a great storyteller, and he would tell stories. And some of them I have vague memories of, but later on, I don't recall much ever talking about it. When did you uh, 
discover or uh, take possession of the letters in the diary? The letters, it's amazing they were kept. There must be a, roughly 40 letters. And the letters uh, were kept by his parents and his siblings, his, his younger brother and his several sisters. And at some point they must have given these all back to him because he brought them with him to Virginia Tech. Some of them were singed in a fire in the apartment he and some other men lived in. And so then he passed them on. My sister had them, and when she passed away in 1997, uh, whoever was handling her papers, her children, passed the letters on to me. And uh, they sat around. I was working on a major project that time when I got them. And, they sat around until the point I retired, and I, I said, oh, let's look at those. That must be a great story, and it was. What did they tell you? Uh, they, the, com the letters, while he's in combat, are obviously discreet because there was heavy censorship. And the doughboys, as they were called, knew there was censorship. Why were they called doughboys? Uh, good question. Nobody knows exactly. Uh, the theory is that when the American army invaded Mexico in the Mex Mexican-American War, the soldiers got a doughish or powderish color on their uniforms from marching across the arid landscape. Mm -hmm. For some reason, it, it, that's when it was first used. I don't know that it was ever used in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. It may have been used again when Pershing, who was, of course, the top general in Europe in World War I, took a group of soldiers into Mexico in 1915-16 in pursuit of Pancho Villa, mm -hmm. who had come across the line, the, the, the border, and raided the town of Columbus, New Mexico. So it may have come back into usage then. That's my guess, but nobody is exactly sure. So the letters um, uh, that you discovered uh, and what uh, they told you, uh, very discreet in the way of, could, could you tell in his writing that he was being uh, cautious about what he, what he was to say? And what, what, was, what were the military, and I guess they were censors, were they not? I mean, what, oh, were, yeah. they, what yeah. were they looking for? My, well, they were looking for anything that would have well, one, they were looking for any statements that would suggest demoralization. But oh. the other thing they would look for would be anything that would give away locations, what they might be doing, what they were going to do next. The letters are often headed up at the top, somewhere in France, you know, October 21st, say, 1918, somewhere in France. So he really doesn't talk about much about the battles. The, the beauty of the letters is that in the occupation period, he is much, much, much more candid about what he's doing uh, in both the letters and the diaries because I, I'm guessing that the censorship went out when they, uh, when they got out of war condition. If the indication was a demoralizing factor of some sort, what could the military have done? I have no idea. I'm, I'm, I don't know what the, the implications that might have been. So as a runner, I'm trying to imagine, did, was he sent out by himself 
to do this? Or did he have a Another interesting with little, little tidbit I learned about that is that um, they often sent out two or three in the expectation that one of them wouldn't make it. So often they might have been sent by different routes. They might have been sent at different times. That's how, that's how perilous the job was. What were the distances that he traveled? Or, I have no idea. Yeah. That's, why, that's something I'm not really aware uh-huh. of. I, would, uh, I, I really don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. It's just fascinating to... You know of... another runner in World War I? More famous? Adolf Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> how, that's the way he started? Yeah. Really? <laughs> Yeah, he was he was an Austrian, but he was in the service of the Bavarian Bavarian units. But he was a runner. Yeah, goodness. <laughs> well, I just um, I just uh, watched Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At the Kentucky Theater, yeah. the twentieth anniversary of the yeah. film. Yeah and uh, was presented uh, at the Kentucky Theater uh, on D-Day, June 6th. And I don't know if I've seen uh, the film uh, since 1998, but it just, uh, war is uh, hell. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just can't imagine uh, what your father uh, must have gone through uh, and all of our, our military veterans uh, of, of um, in all armed services in, in all of our wars, in World War I, uh, but of course Saving Private Ryan is the story taken from World War II. The, the Battle of Meuse-Argonne, which my father came into, his, his unit was on the very first assault and then was brought back and then went in at the end was the costliest single battle that American soldiers, for American soldiers that they've ever fought in. And uh, it was it was green American troops for the most part facing Germans who had been there for years, heavily well defended positions and uh, a colleague of mine, David Kennedy, who teaches history at Stanford, said of this battle that the Americans won the war by smothering the enemy with flesh. In other words, they kept sending in, sending in, sending in troops following one after the other. And uh, I think if it had, if the United States had lost the battle, there would certainly have been major investigations of the leadership because they just kept sending waves of and waves of men and that's what eventually did it i mean of course you know can't say the united states came in the last six months and won the Mm -hmm. war that that's terribly terribly uh short-sighted and error what what uh, what was our objective in that uh, battle other than to win the objective was to uh really to finish off the Germans, I mean, the, yeah, the Germans in France. They had, these positions had been established 1914, 15, heavily defended. 
they were sort of the last line of resistance. But, and, and of course, when that battle ended, there were other battles going on simultaneously. And when that battle ended, then very shortly after that uh, came the armistice and the end of the war. Have you traveled to, to Europe? I have to, not, and to, I would very much love yeah. to, to retrace his steps all uh -huh. the way from where he trained in, in uh -huh. the Burgundy region all the way up to... I'd love to go to the part of Germany he was in for six months because it looks like an... He described it as a fairyland. It looked like a, just a beautiful, beautiful place. And I would love to retrace those and may yet be able to do it. Your other uh, contribution to our Speakers Bureau is uh, on Vietnam and your work there, um, a 50-year uh, retrospective and uh, on the anniversary that, uh, that we're celebrating. Um, you, you really are quite factual in that one in going through how we got there and what our objectives were and what we were doing there. Um, we, we talked about... Um, Ken Burns's uh, Vietnam um, perspective uh, that just finished up this last year, I guess in 17, uh, what was it this year? I, I, uh, it was, within, within uh, yeah, last, it was the fall of, within the fall last of 2017. Yeah, yeah, fall yeah. of 2017. So um, just talk a little bit about, uh, about your thoughts there and, and um, how you look back at it now today and your research that, that put this together and then um, what, what it... What it, what it means to you as we talk about it. Yeah, the, the Burns series, I, I was impressed with it. I think uh, he, uh, he's very good at telling the stories of individuals. That was true of the Civil War, uh, and it's certainly true of this. Uh, there's some really wonderful, uh, some uplifting stories, some terribly tragic stories. Uh, there's one story of a young man who didn't seem to be physically qualified to go to war, but wanted to go to war. Can't remember. He seems like he was somewhere in the Midwest, and his story, I think, spreads over several, at least maybe several of the things. And and you know from the minute, you just know in your mind that he's not going to make it, and indeed he doesn't. So, the stories are are really uh, very well told. And the, I think what is special about his, uh, this uh, version of Vietnam is that uh, the producers made a special effort to, uh, to get Vietnamese voices uh, and did a reasonably good job with that. Uh, they talked to North Vietnamese soldiers, including Bao Ninh, who was a veteran who had wrote the... Uh, quite powerful book called The Sorrow of War. Uh, they talked to... Uh, You've read that? I have. I used to assign it in class. Oh. I, I would match it up with Tim O'Brien's yeah. The Things They Carried and, yeah, which and I've then read. have the students compare and contrast. Really? What, what is the... Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful uh, academic exercise. Yeah, oh, uh, it, it, and they loved it. Yeah, yeah. they loved so, it. So, because <laughs> I have not read uh, the, the Vietnamese book, Tell me a little bit about it, and tell me how, how he, uh, well, in that exercise of compare and contrast. If I, if I hadn't said that he's North Vietnamese and told you the story, you would say it if probably it would have applied to anyone. He was a young man who was drafted, uh, who 
late in the war who was sent to South Vietnam, which was an area as alien to him as, say, Thailand might have been. Because they're very different, just as the southern and northern United States are different. Uh, he undergoes horrific experiences in the war. He makes it out, and then, like many soldiers in wars uh, from the beginning of time, has all kinds of trouble adjusting, living in peace, becomes very disillusioned with the war, with the cause the leaders fought it for, and all of that. It's, it's a familiar story, and it's written with, with just great power. Highly recommend it. And written by North Vietnamese. Yeah, yeah. So, and also they talked uh, to uh, Southern Vietnamese who had joined the revolution early on. They talked to uh, members of the Viet Cong. They talked to people who fought on the South Vietnamese side. And for the most part, these aren't top people. The different, one of the main differences between the 1983 PBS series, which is wonderful, and I used in classes for years, and this is that this one picks up more of the story of the common soldier and less of the perspective of, of leaders. So uh, that's, uh, that's an area, I think, where it really excels. I was interested in talking to people, both people who had been in Vietnam, fought in Vietnam, and had not fought in Vietnam, uh, about their reactions to it. And one of the things that really impressed them was the first, um, the first episode, where they take the story uh, back to French colonialism and the rebellion against French colonialism beginning around 1900, uh, on up through Ho Chi Minh, who, who's the central character from 1930s on to 1962 or three, when he's more, well, or even earlier than that, when he's replaced. Uh, but, and they, this was something they knew very little or nothing about, and it really impressed them, because it indicated that the war they were fighting in was much more complicated than they had seen it or than it had been portrayed to them. And I remember in one of the episodes uh, in the Burns uh, documentary, there was a great uh, a conflict among uh, the, the leaders uh, in North Vietnam about strategy. Yep, yep, yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's what my, my colleague and good friend, friend uh, Hang Nguyen has written about, and mainly talking about 19... Well, what she talks about is 1967 when they're planning the Tet Offensive and the man who replaced Ho Chi Minh, the man by the name of Le Zuan, uh, is all for the knockout blow. Yeah. And, and that's who ultimately wins out. Ho ends up spending part of the time while the decisions are being made in China almost in exile. Uh, the leading general, the master of the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, had uh, uh, Vo Win Jop had, uh, uh, he was in Hungary. So the, these were the people who fought against Lezuan in terms of how to proceed and lost and more or less were in exile for a period of six, eight months. So, uh, you also mentioned that um, the, the portrayal of um, the, the conflict here at home, the yeah. domestic uh, uh, protest um, and uh, marches and and the creation of uh, of new 
startup groups that that uh, sprung up to to, yeah. to 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 be involved. A little bit about that. And, yeah, and I I was not I I was a little underwhelmed rather with that, and and it's it's hard because it's a very complicated story. I mean, the the anti-war movement, if you look at it, and it's in all its uh, in all its uh, manifestations, can go from say Stokely Carmichael way out on the left to J. William Fulbright, Arkansas conservative senator uh, on the other side. Both opposed the war for very different reasons and with very different, in very different ways. So, and that only, that scratches the surface. I mean, the range of people, part of the problem the anti-war movement experienced was that it was so diverse and fragmented and fractionalized that it was hard at times to pull things together. But it had its moments, and I guess it captures, it captures the moment of, say, the March on the Pentagon in 1967. It captures the moment of the moratorium protest in the fall of 1969. But it doesn't, from my, and I, here's the professional historian speaking, I suppose, it doesn't, begin to convey how diverse, complex, variegated this thing was, and, and doesn't begin to come to terms, professional historians speaking again, with what was the impact of all this? You know, what, did it, what did it accomplish? What did it not accomplish? Uh, that sort of thing. And uh, that sort of begs the question, what did it accomplish? Uh, it did not. Uh, in in a few words, it did not change the minds of the American people. I am persuaded. There are some sort of conspiracy theories out there that the media and the anti-war movement uh, confused and deluded the American people into opposing the war, and that was the reason the war was lost. And and that I, I find uh, quite simplistic. Uh, it did not really, as well as we can tell, it did not really change the minds of the American people about the war. What changed the minds of the American people about the war was the rising cost in blood and treasure, which began to hit in 1967 when the number of Americans killed skyrocketed. And when Johnson first talked about raising taxes, uh, and that's sort of when these things mm -hmm. come together. If you the clear turn, Tet, Tet, the Tet Offensive of 68 is a turning point in a lot of ways, but where the change really begins is 1967. What does the anti-war movement do? It raises all kinds of questions. It raises questions about why we're in Vietnam. It raises questions about what we're doing in Vietnam. It raises questions about whether we can succeed in Vietnam. So all what, kinds of things. What the end game is. Exactly, yeah. And Which all, no one could answer. Well. All kinds of things that, that otherwise yeah. would have been kept mm -hmm. under wraps begin to be exposed with the teach-ins in 1965 on college campuses. And you know, Professor Herring, one of the things that, that still astounds uh, to this day, and we're still finding out um, a lot about what the American people were not told and how misled we were. And I think one of the most uh, surprising elements of all of that is what we didn't know that, uh, that President Kennedy had participated in to suppress 
um, facts and figures, and and I don't I can't recall anything, but uh, I mean, well, the big <laughs> the big thing in his case is that he sends. A large number of troops to Vietnam in 1962 who were called advisors uh, and who are supposed to be telling South Vietnamese how to fight, who are out there fighting themselves and actually leading South Vietnamese units in action. And so numbers of Americans start getting killed and questions start being asked and again he tries to people like David Halberstam and Neil Shea and some of the most famous journalists of the war cut their teeth during this period in they Vietnam. Sure did. And when they're sending back reports to the to the Times and in the case of Sheehan I think uh, uh, UPI they uh, Kennedy tries to you know, put the lid on this yeah. and snuff it out. So, and what we also don't know, you, you, you don't know until later are Kennedy's, Kennedy's a very, um, a very, a man of very mixed minds on this. Mm -hmm. He's very dubious about the enterprise. Interestingly, he had spent time in Vietnam in 1951 when the French war was going on had grown skeptical about that war and our support of it and remained skeptical about it. He, he, he was a torn man. He didn't, he didn't want to lose because losing was a stigma that would have been hard to handle politically. He once told a, a senator, a former colleague, that uh, I can't do anything in terms of scaling back or pulling out until after I'm reelected in 1964. He doesn't want to lose, but he doesn't want to make a commitment either, and so he takes that to his grave. He's, mm -hmm. he's still divided when he comes to his, when he is assassinated and died. And I uh, remember just uh, like it was yesterday, but I remember it well, uh, and it just takes a reminder of two from the documentary or from reading when uh, President Johnson uh, announced uh, that if uh, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, <laughs> the most <laughs> trusted man in America, if yeah. I've lost Walter Cronkite, um, uh, I don't know what the rest of that phrase was. Then then I've lost. It, uh, I've lost Middle America. I've uh, lost yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the cause. Yeah, and it's interesting that that a journalist in terms of today's context, should be the most trustest man in America. Yeah, trusted and, well, man in America. See, that's, that's how Isn't that, it, a, that crazy? Yeah, <laughs> it, well, that's just how so many things have changed. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, at that time, uh, it was sacrosanct. It was, it was uh, against all uh, teaching and learning and, and practice of journalism that, that a yeah. journalist, certainly of Walter Cronkite's, stature would ever give a personal opinion yeah until yeah. he did one of his uh and uh, interesting about cronkite he had been a pretty for he he pretty firm supporter of the war yeah. up to this point well he was a war correspondent that, that's and why he, yeah that's yeah. why it makes it uh that's why yeah. it makes it significant yeah 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 but that's um <laughs> that's, that's changed a lot from then uh, to today well yeah. Uh, Professor Herring, you are uh, indeed a, uh, a wonderful addition to our Speakers Bureau, and, and uh, I hope you continue to talk about this and, and uh, are given an opportunity to 
express yourself and to spread your your wise expertise uh, on these matters. And we we appreciate you being uh, part of us. Thank you very much. The uh, dealing with the Humanities Council has been one of the uh, great great. Uh, pleasures of my career here and particularly in retirement I uh, love going out and uh, talking to people about these subjects. So. Well uh, if we have anything to do about it we'll just continue that. How about that? Thank you very much. Professor yeah. George Herring. Thank you sir. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Mm -hmm.